This is Leader ReadyCast, a monthly podcast featuring real-world lessons, best practices, and action-oriented insights for the urate moments when you're called upon to lead. Leader ReadyCast is the official podcast of the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative, a joint program of the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and the Center for Public Leadership at the Harvard John F. Kennedy School of Government. Subscribe to Leader ReadyCast wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Welcome to Leader ReadyCast. I'm your host, Eric McNulty, broadcasting from the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative offices here at Harvard University. Decisions, decisions, decisions. They're everywhere. When leading, particularly in the midst of crisis, your decisions are often how you're judged. You rarely have all the information you'd like, rarely have all the time you'd like. Yet when you're it, you have to make that call. You have to decide. Given the importance of the ability to make decisions to effectiveness when leading, it's odd how few people are formally trained in the art and science of making those decisions. No matter what circumstances you find yourself in, there are tools and techniques you can utilize to help you get closer to the best possible decision. Now, to help us explore that today is our guest, Dr. Carl Spetzler. Carl is one of the top go-to people in decision science, and he spent his career helping individuals and organizations systematically improve the decisions they make. Carl is co-founder, chairman, and CEO of Strategic Decision Group, and has taught at Stanford University. Currently, SDG has an academic partnership with Texas Executive Education at the University of Texas. We have to figure out how we get Harvard into that mix. He's also co-author of a book I recommend often, it's Decision Quality, Value Creation Through Better Business Decisions. Carl, welcome to the program. It's my pleasure to be here with you. Now let's start with the basics. For the uninitiated, what exactly is decision science? Well, uh, Eric, this is a vast field in a way. Uh, there are two sides to it. Uh, one is the side uh, uh, that describes how humans behave in decision-making. It's the psychology, how the mind works, how we're wired, and how we actually do things to come to conclusions and make judgments. And the other side of this is a how do you think straight and what is what does it take to truly reach the best decision in the face of uncertainty and complexity and long time horizons, many variables interacting. And these two fields come together in the practice where people like myself who consider ourselves decision professionals help organizations and individuals make the best choice that they can make to get the most of what they truly want. And even the, the question of what you truly want is a big, you know, there's a whole sub uh, part to decision science. How do you really specify what we care about, what we want, what the value trade-offs are? So there's a, a big field of getting you to the, to the place where you get the best out of a decision situation. And I think as I listen to you, an important distinction that I've picked up over the years, which is people often speak in terms of good and bad decisions. I think it may be more helpful to think of better and worse decisions because there is a continuum there of possible outcomes, possible considerations, as you say, possible defined uh, preferences for that for that outcome. 
and seeing how close you get to it uh, or how well the process goes is, is critically important. Very much so, yeah. In what we find in this field that we can improve upon what human normal nature is and get to a, a significantly better decision, often doubling the value with very little additional cost because making the best choice in a situation doesn't come naturally. We're we actually wired for what people call satisfying to get to something good enough and getting on with the action. Most humans are more comfortable once they've got their mind made up and they know what to do and in, are in the action mode, as opposed to being in the having to decide mode where we, we do really have to deliberate and think about possibilities and what could be the consequences and so on. That's just uncomfortable for our mind. It takes a lot of energy. And so we switch to the other side as fast as we can. And we get to good enough and we get on with it, okay? And leave a lot of value on the table. So what are the first two or three ingredients of a truly high quality decision? Well, there are three really meta skills that we all need and have to integrate in a decision. One is creativity. We have to generate uh, multiple alternatives and our, our decision doesn't get any better than the best alternative that we have and thinking about the frame and even defining the decision situation, all of that takes a lot of creativity. We have to have the critical thinking and sound reasoning capability of thinking our way through the many possibilities of consequences, depending on the kind of decisions. It, that, that reasoning process can take quite a bit of effort. Then the third skill set and competency that we need in making decisions is really the, the human nature part, okay? That both knowing ourselves, what we truly want, what we care about, what our biases are, what our natural tendencies are to go right or wrong, as well as interacting with others and the, the whole social competencies or what people talk about as EQ. So all three of those are necessary. And in a decision, they have to be integrated. And they have to be integrated to find the best choice. That's, uh, you know, an aside here. We have been trying to teach and bring this into the beginning of high schools. Okay. Uh, and we're making good progress on it. But the biggest challenge is that everything is siloed. The creative arts are separate from the analytical, are separate from the social emotional. Okay. And so, uh, in decision-making, you have to integrate that. It's an integrative skill that has to, you have to go wherever it takes you in that uh, skill set to be able to solve the problem and find that alternative, which gives you the most of what you want. So the integration skill of those three ingredients is just as important as the individual skill sets in those ingredients. Does that make sense to you? That makes sense to me. It's a classic emergent property, right? If you have to, you get something more out of bringing the three together than you would get from any one of the three alone, right. even if you do them right. really, really well. And I see definite barriers there, again, particularly in terms of, of, of crisis decision-making that people would say, oh, we have to go too fast to, be, to stop and be creative. We haven't got time for that. And then there's also, again, a push to say, let's get the emotions out of it and just be purely rational. And I, 
I don't know about you, but I've yet to meet a purely rational human being. Emotions well, are part of how we receive and, and deliver communication. It's part of the social interaction. You can't get rid of it. You just have to understand how to use it. You know, being truly rational requires including the emotional. The, the nature uh, of decision-making means we have to be able to weigh things uh, in terms of how much we care. And that actually is centered in our emotional center. So when people are uh, somehow injured in, uh, in, in their emotional center due to some lesion or brain surgery or something, they sound totally rational, but they stand in front of toothpaste and can't decide which one. Because that requires this ability to, to compare and weigh how much do I like this versus that. That's emotional. So inherently, there is no way of truly separating the human decision-making from the emotional. It is an integration of emotion and reasoning. So let's look at an example of this. I mean, uh, I would, as we both know, many of our, my listeners here will be making decisions in crisis situations. How would you actually apply decision quality principles to a, a real crisis management situation? Could you give us a concrete example? Uh, well, you know, it, it's interesting. Uh, just last evening, I attended uh, a, an event that was given by the FBI kind of alumni and citizen association or whatever it's called. And they, they were featuring uh, a couple of speakers on the Gilroy Gardalic uh, Festival shooting that happened in July of this year. And there were three dead and 17 wounded. It was a wonderful, amazing story, okay? Uh, and I, I really uh, helped me get into the mindsets of these two people. And the two people that were presenting it, one was the head of the FBI guys that was on site, and they uh, ended up managing the crime scene and taking that over and are real experts in that on a national basis. And uh, the local commander that uh, was kind of in charge that uh, of, of everything else, okay? And so they talked about their experience and both of them said that they don't even remember much of the time. And they were in this high intensity flow of making decisions, okay? And after they had gone through and talked about this and the, the aftermath was the biggest piece, actually. Uh, they, I'll come back to some of that. I asked them the question saying, so most of your decision-making was on automatic when you were in that envelope that you were trained for, okay? And in that they had pre-practiced and the decisions are automatic and instantaneous and they're habit-based. They're not, they're like driving. We, we don't think about the decisions when we make them or, or playing a, some kind of a sport. But then I said, when you're outside that envelope, and you something different. And it was very easy to see uh, on, on both of them that that's when they were most stressed. And so uh, the commander on, on the ground had pulled everybody back to kind of a command center relatively quickly out of a big space, mainly because there had been a statement around that there was a potentially a second shooter. Yes, okay? I remember that, yeah. And because of that assumption, that second shooter assumption, he made that. 
it turned out there was no second shooter. This was a solo act. And now you can see the hindsight bias of all the news media saying, hey, you know, how come you did that and endangered this and moved the people and so on, okay? But you can also see him thinking of in the situation that I was, was that the right thing to do? Well, it's very hard with hindsight. We, hindsight bias is one of those biases that we have that uh, really make us believe we knew it all along. And it happens very quickly to our minds and we're all susceptible to it. So to understand a decision, you have to understand it at the time it's being made and what the conditions are and what you're thinking and what the pressures are. And if I, if I divide this up a little bit into different kinds of decisions that these guys faced, there's this whole set within the envelope that they've been trained for, where they have protocol calls that have been designed and thought through, and, and they're on automatic, okay? So that's a different decision mode that you're in when you are now something comes up that's outside of that envelope, and we have to think about the specific, but we have to make it very fast in the context of a crisis. Okay, so now you, you're switching from the automatic mind, and the automatic mind is kind of what Kahneman calls system one. It's extremely fast, and when it's highly practiced, it has certain characteristics, but it's very effective if you're in the right place with it, okay? But once you're outside, you're in the deliberative mind, and when the deliberative mind has to go make rapid decisions under pressure, all kinds of other uh, biases come up and mechanisms, and we have to have a different capability, a skill for making those. Now it's building decision quality uh, on the run, okay, but deliberatively. And then there are a lot of decisions, when you reflect on this, that have to do with designing the protocols. Now you have time. It's beforehand. It's, it's the preventative stuff we do. It's the, the design of what should we do in this and what should we practice so we are prepared or what should we do in terms of decision-making to reduce the probability of this kind of event happening and recognizing potential threats and things of this sort. Okay? So those decisions we can make with care. We do them with all kinds of wargaming and role-playing to get inside and testing and simulation and then practice and so on. And once we've got the protocol down and saying this is the best practice, now we go and we practice that until people can do it on automatic in the, in the crisis mode, okay? So I think that in fact, the, what we have to look out for and what we have to design to have good decision-making in those three worlds of being on, within the envelope on automatic, being on rapid under pressure decision mode, or careful, thoughtful design decisions on protocols and preventative uh, prevention, it's surprising how different the, these decision settings and situations end up with very different kinds of, let's say, demands to improve them and how you make them better, okay? Uh, the, 
One of the things that is, is uh, I see coming along on this is a lot of uh, man-machine assistance. So it's not just uh, that we're, it has to be done within the head. We're going to have improvements. And there was a lot of collaboration. And when they believed there was still a, a second shooter and had that second, they, they were not totally on automatic. They had, did all kinds of things deliberatively already, but it was all with the mindset of protecting from further loss of life. Uh, that lasted like 24 hours. After that, I was amazed at how big of an effort it was to deal with the aftermath of getting, uh, dealing with the, the shock, caring for victims, victims' families, getting uh, property back to people. They had all kinds of property on the crime scene that now had abandoned and that they had to deal with and so on. So in, in all of that, there are very different purposes, different constraints, different rules, and different biases and decision traps. So it requires a bit of a, what I call uh, understanding the anatomy of decisions and then getting very situational and saying, okay, in this uh, immediate first minute, what's the right decision environment? What should it do? And the way they there was a response on the ground by three policemen that ran towards the shooter and they did shoot him a number of times. Ultimately, I, I read that the shooter died by a self-inflicted wound. But their, their decisions and their courage is a completely different environment than what you're on is when you're trying to design a protocol. So how do we, how do we get there? I mean, I think that you mentioned several biases. One of the ones I play with a lot is outcome bias, where we tend to judge based on what happened which is not the same as judging the process by which you got there, because you can't always control the outcome. So how do we get better at understanding how to evaluate the decision process and not just the final result? So th this, you know, that's at the heart of, uh, and, and I think, let, let's just say that the human mind is pretty poor at manipulating probabilities, okay? So my guess is the probability that there is a second shooter the realistic probability of that changed over time significantly and their decisions would have changed if they had a meter somewhere they could see and saying, how likely is it that there's a second shooter? Okay. And making for them, probably their protocol is while that is not eliminated completely, is to act as if there's a second shooter, which undermines a lot of their actual remediation efforts that they're doing on the ground. So if they had known that, and that would have been, in my view, is one of those things that would be knowable because the, the biases, the human biases, are, would be easily overcome with some kind of artificial intelligence support, decision support, that would give people a sense of how likely that is based on even crowdsourcing of what we've seen, okay? You, so, so I expect that we're going to have uh, continuing help and growth in the artificial intelligence pieces that will come, that will aggregate data and bring it to the 
human decision makers in a better digestible and decision ready form to be able to enhance their high pressure decisions and, and, and make them better more quickly. And I just want to touch on one point that related to the story you told about, about Gilroy, uh, which re reminded me of advice from uh, former colleague Mark Roberts, who's our late colleague, who was an ethicist who taught in our program. And one of the things he always counseled people was, whenever possible, if you're making a high-consequence decision, write down what you, what you know at the moment. Write it down on a piece of paper and stick it in your pocket. Because yes. when you get called in front of the media or in front of a congressional review committee or some other regulator a month, three months, six months down the road, that hindsight bias is going to kick in. Everyone's recollection of what happened will have shaped things differently. And if you can pull out the piece of paper and say, here's exactly what we knew when I made that decision, you're much closer to being able to evaluate that decision in the proper context as opposed to yes. the, the narrative that's unfolded after the fact. Yes. I think that's still yeah. wise advice. Complete. I am in complete agreement. And in fact, if you want to have, when, when we work with corporate organizations on big bet decisions, where they're investing hundreds of millions or billions at a time, uh, we invariably create a decision record at the time of decision. And that decision record becomes the learning, the, the start for our learning process for lookbacks. But if you don't create the decision record at the time and really record uh, the, uh, the degree of uncertainty and what the decision situation truly is, hindsight bias will make the learning very, will degrade learning with hindsight uh, uh, tremendously. So you, you, have to, you have to do it at the time of decision, both for def defense, as you were talking about, how to defend the decision against somebody, uh, but also for uh, systematically being able to learn from our decisions. That's a great point. So you've mentioned traps several times. What are some of the more common decision traps you've seen people fall into, particularly those they might fall into in a crisis situation? Well, so I think the, the first of all, there are lots of biases, uh, you know, hundreds of them that have been identified in mechanisms of the mind. But the most fundamental mechanism that we have when we have to make decisions either on automatic or rapidly is, is uh, what Danny Kahneman called WYSIWYG, okay? which, which stands for what you see is all there is. So the mind assumes that what I have available, either in the mind or within direct sight or listening, is what it takes to make this decision. It does not say, stop, I need to go outside. And it may not be here, okay? Things like this. So, so that uh, leads to, uh, if you have the false, a false assumption, you'll just act with that false assumption and keep going. And you will see all, with that false assumption, uh, we'll have all kinds of, confirming evidence bias, selective attention bias, that you, you, we get stuck with status quo, whatever we are, we, we, we prefer, okay? That is, if you own a stock, it's hard to sell, but you wouldn't buy it, okay? And things of this sort. So there are a whole set of biases that we label the protection of mindset. Then the way the mind reasons is not by doing the right kind of logic of probability, 
it does reasons by automatic association. This goes with that. And by comparison, what is more or less bigger, smaller, etc. That combination of reasoning of how the works leads to all kinds of things of availability effects. That is stuff that is reasoned, vivid, loud, special will get the attention. It'll get has to do with ease of recall and anchoring. And there are, there are lots of those kinds of biases that come in. And to me, the other big thing that's missing here is that we need a system three, okay? Danny uh, Kahneman talks about system one, that's the automatic brain. System two, that's the deliberative thinking things through, a much slower brain. But what we call system three is really reaching out to something else that's a, uh, an assist that augments the human nature. So it could be on your smartphone or on a desk that you have incoming data or you have visibility that allows you to get more information and do some minor calculation. People are building all those kinds of tools now uh, to enhance human decision-making and, and also prevent some of these natural biases in healthcare, okay, prognosis and also uh, dealing with health care protocols and so on. Uh, but also, I think this would be very helpful and useful. And I don't know how far it's developed in the emergency response world. I mean, you have these command centers mm -hmm. and, and a lot of stuff coming in. But my guess is we can do a lot if we take a decision perspective and understand the anatomy of decisions and then work out okay, to what do we need. Yeah, I, I, I certainly I, I haven't seen an advance to the to the AI or machine learning phase yet. But what I have seen, um, one is that I've seen within that emergency operations center, a couple of people assigned to best case outcome and others assigned, a couple assigned to worst case outcome and to, to figure out what has to be true, sort of, you know, sort of pre-mortem on the fly. Of right. If we're going to get the best case, these things have to happen or be in place. And if it's going to all go south, this is what we think will have been true. To, again, generate more options and open up some blind spots. Uh, the other thing which I've only ever seen one, but I did talk to a, to a CEO of an industrial company who I think after I was reading Danny Kahneman's book or, uh, or not, but actually put a cognitive bias person on his crisis management team whose only job was to, to deeply understand the many biases that could, be, that could manifest and watch for them and point them out. As you, as you mentioned, there are hundreds of them. So for any of us lay people, yeah. um, to, to know them all, it, it's almost impossible. Uh, and for listeners, I, I should mention that Danny Kahneman's book we keep referring to is called Thinking Fast and Slow. Yes. If I could get a royalty for each time I've recommended it, I'd be a rich person by now. It's really <laughs> fabulous. Yeah. It's an essential read for anyone Yes, it who is. tries to lead or, or manage an organization. And, and, and that literature, you know, I had the, the great pleasure of working with Danny and Amos uh, Tversky, who was, uh, they, the two guys were really a, a great team back in the early 70s, where we applied the, this emerging discipline to how do we capture unbiased probability estimates of likely events and kind of do better assessments. And it, it's a huge field. It, now, it's, it's a, the way it is structured as a field, though, it seems like this long list of mental mechanisms, 
300 of them. And everybody that uh, has to get a PhD in psychology has to get another named one. But integrating it into real decision settings where they don't come one at a time, they come in a flow and, and, and a bundle, and they come often with uh, uh, speed where you could de describe it one way or the other, and we don't have time to do the research. In that setting, avoiding the biases requires either design, like you can design decision protocols that you can train people to be automatic on, and into the design, you have certain bias prevention mechanisms. You can, you can do things, and, and uh, there are some uh, good tools out there now that are coming out in the decision-making world that are trying to build into the design of the decision platform the, these kinds of bias prevention mechanisms, like people don't consider enough alternatives. Well, it forces them to consider alternatives. Or uh, people fall into a narrow frame and it overcomes the framing bias and things of that sort, okay? So there are, there are ways that we can help. Uh, I think that in the crisis management world, those things uh, have special needs. Uh, Gary Klein, uh, with his orientation and research towards the naturalistic decision-making and the rapid decision-making, emergency decision-making kind of things, has done a lot of work in that. I presume that's familiar to many of your uh, uh, members. Is that right? I, I would hope so, but if not, we will, we will uh, put a link to some of his work up on the when we post yeah. this, pod, this uh, podcast. We'll link to Gary's work, and it's very, very good. And, and I think what he basically, let, let me uh, take one of the big things I took out of his research that he concluded is intuition or this automatic decision-making works very well for someone that is highly educated on it. Okay. So it's highly trained. So it, and it beats being rational because rational for many of these emergency situations is just too slow. If you, if you, you have to build on something that you're trained for. And that's why what I think about, the way I think about it is when you have this training, uh, just like in the military, people talk about that uh, the, the plan works until you have the first contact with the uh, enemy. Okay. But the, you're outside of the, the envelope of the training. You have to recognize whether it's fit. So the first quick judgment is I'm in the right zone. I'm working within the envelope for which I'm trained for. I'm on automatic. And then an awareness of, whoa, this decision, that doesn't fit into this mode. How, and I have to have an alternative method for making those decisions deliberately still under pressure fast. And that the biases that come in under those conditions are different than the biases that would occur in the automatic way. And they're, they dip, they're situational. Okay, it's, it, I, I don't think you can train someone on the whole thing to the level where they won't occur anymore. Okay? Yeah, no, I think, I think it's, that's right. But that's a very good distinction you, you bring up about knowing whether you're in the envelope or out of the envelope. Um, yeah. You know, one of the places I see people go wrong 
and, it, and this is tends to be, it can be, I hate to denigrate anyone, but elected officials and or very senior executives in, in uh, the private sector who are used to being in charge. And so they yeah. come into a, into a new environment, let's say an emergency response, and they decide they're in charge. Even though they don't, they haven't done the training, they haven't probably been to all the drills, they, they try and go into automatic mode, but they're not, they're not equipped to be there, yeah. uh, which, which makes them perform in a less yeah. than optimal way, shall we say. And, and, and let me just say, the, designing the protocol on which you train people to be within the envelope, that protocol design, you have time for. Now you have the full capability of reaching decision quality, meeting the six requirements of decision quality and thinking through what the choices should be and even role-playing them and wargaming them and doing all the simulations necessary to design what we want to be capable of doing in, when we're in the emergency response mode. So just to wrap up here in our last couple of minutes, could you give us what's the one thing you would ask our listeners to go do today or tomorrow to begin to immediately improve their decision making? Can you give us one quick tip to put to work? Well, if they, if they, uh, it depends on these two areas, but let's say for this whole subject of making deliberative decisions and designing protocols, I suggest they read the first four chapters, which are very easy, fast reading in of decision quality. That gives them the decision quality framework and the high level principles of how you get there. And I think most people still think of decision making as a matter of style or something. Uh, many styles will get you to decision quality, but style is not a substitute for having a good decision. And the good decision isn't just about the process. Many, you can, I can measure the quality or judge the quality of a decision and not have to know how you got there, okay? And that, that idea that there is a quality decision and what are the requirements for a quality decision and getting good at that judgment, I think is the real key. It's a little bit like uh, eating a menu from a, uh, from a restaurant. I don't have to know how it was cooked to, to be able to judge whether the meal itself has high quality, okay? And in a similar sense, a decision, I can judge the quality of a decision without knowing all the, the, the process pieces. And many times your listeners are more in the decision maker role where things are being brought to them and they have to judge a, reg a recommendation or see, uh, evaluate a decision and the quality of that decision. And so I think the framework of decision quality and the requirements of decision quality are really central in all of that. Well, fortunate for all of our listeners, uh, they can all get a copy of that book, Decision Quality, Value Creation Through Better Business Decisions at their favorite bookseller. And listeners, I hope that you judge your decision to listen to this podcast has been a good one. I've certainly learned a lot along the way. And uh, Carl, I want to thank you very much for joining us. You can learn more about Carl and his work at sdg.com. And I look forward to joining you all again next month. Until then, get ready to leave when your Yurik moment arrives. Thank you very much. This has been another episode of Leader ReadyCast from the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative. Subscribe.
subscribe to Leader ReadyCast wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And find out more about us at npli.sph.harvard.edu. Follow us on Twitter at HarvardNPLI. Thanks for listening and be ready to lead.